The term bodhicitta in Pali and Sanskrit can be translated as awakened heart or enlightened mind. Bodhi means wisdom or awakening. And jitta is the word for heart and mind combined. And in the Tibetan tradition, bodhicitta refers to the aspiration that we can cultivate to awaken for the benefit of all beings. So it really enlarges the scope of our practice and aspiration. Bodhicitta can be understood on two levels. There's ultimate bodhicitta, which refers to the wisdom aspect of emptiness, understanding the selfless, insubstantial, empty nature of phenomena. And the relative level of bodhicitta refers to compassion. It's said that when these two are both present, compassion and wisdom of emptiness, enlightenment is unavoidable. So we've spoken some about emptiness and selflessness, the insubstantial nature of things. Tonight I'd like to speak about compassion. And the Buddha emphasized this quality of mind in different places in the teachings. Now, as you're probably familiar with, he spoke of compassion as one of the four Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes of loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. He also taught of compassion in the Eightfold Path. In the second step of the path of right thought, the Buddha talked of those thoughts and intentions which lead to the happiness and welfare of beings. And these are thoughts and intentions of renunciation, of loving-kindness, and of compassion, thoughts free of cruelty. Now here we can see the dichotomy of skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome very clearly in the, in the distinction between cruelty and compassion because the mind state of cruelty is that which w- wishes to cause harm to beings, to people. It's that disposition of the mind to cause pain, to cause suffering. So cruelty is really a very strong state of heartlessness. And we can see this mind state manifest in many places in the world, in many situations of violence. You know, sometimes this mind state of cruelty almost feels contagious. You know, where whole populations get involved in killing fields. You know, in the situations years ago in Cambodia, you know, or in Rwanda, or in Darfur. What is it that's happening? It's this mind state of cruelty which has become predominant, which has become rampant. We can see it manifest in the destruction of many native cultures around the world. We see it in the violence and cruelty of slavery. And in the States, very much so, and probably elsewhere, uh, its legacy of racism. We see cruelty manifest uh, in homophobia or in violence against women. The force of this mind state is powerful and very far-reaching. Now, it's not just a rare event that happens. This is an extensive force in the world. Now, compassion is the antidote to this great destructive power. Compassion is that strong wish of the heart of the mind to alleviate suffering, 
Now it's compassion that opens our hearts to the suffering that's there and it overcomes our indifference to it. Compassion is that very strong and deep feeling that is moved to act. This was expressed very well by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese uh, Zen master and poet and peace activist, when he said compassion is a verb. And that, that captures the energy of compassion. It inspires us to act. And it was precisely this feeling that motivated the Bodhisattva, you know, and during his many lifetimes on his journey to Buddhahood. It was just this feeling of compassion for the suffering of beings. The Dalai Lama had a very uh, instructive remark about this quality. He said, compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but difficult to practice. And that's really striking to me. You know, it's worth investigating why such a beautiful and ennobling state of heart and mind, like love and compassion, something which is fundamentally so simple and uncomplicated, why is it hard to practice? When we look at this, it may reveal even small and unnoticed moments of cruelty within ourselves. So compassion arises out of a willingness to come close to suffering. The problem is that even though we may wish to be compassionate, and perhaps in many situations are, we know it's not always easy to open to the suffering that's present. And just as in many cases, we don't really like to open to the suffering that's in ourselves, we don't want to acknowledge our own pain, we don't necessarily want to be with the pain and suffering of others. Now there are very strong tendencies in the mind of denial, you know, where we stay defended or we are withdrawn or we're apathetic or we're indifferent. And this indifference is a great barrier to a compassionate response to the suffering that exists. The American poet Mary Oliver, a wonderful poet, uh, she wrote in a poem called Beyond the Snow Belt. Uh, the poem was about a very destructive storm that happened some counties north you know, of where uh, the poem was set. And it described how in the place where the poem was set, people were just enjoying a nice sunny winter day. Two counties north, there had been a swath of destruction. So she closes the poem with these lines. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And I thought, it so captures. You know, we hear so many reports of suffering in the world. But except as we have loved... All news arrives as from a distant land. So as an experiment, watch your own mind the next time you approach a situation of suffering, just to see what does the mind do in the face of suffering. It might be the experience of some pain in the body. Do we say, oh good, let me be with it. Probably that's not our first response. It might be some emotional distress, discontent, fear, unworthiness, jealousy, loneliness. There's a long list of emotional sufferings. 
It might be an interaction with a difficult person, you know, or a situation of suffering in the world that we become aware of. Maybe of racial injustice or political or religious violence or some natural disaster. What happens in our minds as we face these situations? Either in person or through the vivid images of the media. You know, do we feel uneasy? Do we withdraw? Do we numb out in the face of the suffering? Or do we let it in? So this is something for each of us to explore and just to see what is our response in these situations. There was one experience I had many times in India that just revealed the whole range of those responses. You know, for those of you, for those of you who have been in India, you know the really pitiful condition of the dogs there, just the dogs that are wandering in the streets. You know, they're really starving and often completely covered with mange and no fur. and Just terrible, terrible condition. And many times, you know, I would be, when I was in Bodh Gaya especially, I might be sitting in one of the chai shops, the tea shops, just sitting, having tea with friends. And many of these dogs were around. And it was interesting for me just to see the range of response. When I could let it in, when I, when I was in a space where I could really take in the suffering that was there, it was just the compassion came completely naturally. That was the natural response to letting the suffering in. But at other times, it's as if... Oh, just go away. <laughs> Let me enjoy my tea. You know, and there's that, that feeling of wanting to keep it out. Wanting to close off to it, not to open to it. And of course at that time there was not a compassionate response. And it was just interesting to watch, depending on conditions, which way the heart was inclined. So I think the question for us is how can our hearts stay open given the magnitude of suffering in the world? Is it even possible you know, to see it all with compassion and diminish that, that kind of subtle cruelty of indifference? This challenge is not a theoretical one. Because it's not enough for us to admire the qualities, the noble qualities of love and compassion and kindness, you know, from afar and think, yeah, they're, they're wonderful qualities. Maybe someday I'll have them. You know, but really have the practice of them removed from our daily lives. And it's not enough to simply cultivate these qualities in the solitude of a meditation retreat, you know, where we might practice loving kindness and practice compassion. Our practice is really about the transformation of our consciousness. It's about the transformation of our heart that makes compassionate responsiveness to situations the default setting of our lives. You know, can we transform our understanding in such a way so that openness is where we reside? Compassion requires both openness and equanimity. That is learning to let things in, but without drowning in the sorrow. And even without expectation for outcome. Because we can respond with as much compassion as we have, but many situations are beyond our control. So we need to balance that openness and the compassion with the spaciousness of equanimity. It's really learning 
to be very simply with the truth of things as they are. And this is the great gift of mindfulness to compassion. It's really what we're practicing every time we open to some difficulty in our own life, in our own practice. And just as a, as a model for how we can do this. Again, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh and his teaching of how to be with anger. Right? So anger is a suffering that arises in our minds, in our hearts from time to time. How are we with that suffering? You know, when anger arises. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh says. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. Now listen to this line. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. How many of us do that? You know, the suffering of anger is present. Do we hold it in our arms with utmost tenderness? That's the compassionate response. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. That's just a wonderful teaching about how to be with the suffering states that arise within ourselves. Can we practice compassion with our own suffering? To hold these states tenderly with mindfulness. What happens is that as we practice coming close to our own suffering and being able to open to it with compassion, we then have much greater strength and courage to be with the suffering of others. And the beginning of compassion is empathy. You know, and this happens, empathy happens when we take a moment, really stop and feel what it is that's going on in another person before rushing on with our lives. Now, this is its own practice. It's it's really a helpful practice. Because many times we may be cognizant of another's pain, but we don't take the time to stop and really feel it. It's like we're aware somebody's going through some difficulty, but we're busy with our lives. Empathy requires just taking even a few moments. We settle... And we actually feel what the other person is feeling. We can practice this empathetic response in different kinds of situations. You know, it might be feeling the distress of the restless person sitting next to you. Instead of perhaps our more usual reaction of Why is that person disturbing my practice? Instead of that kind of judgment, we just stop and feel for a moment what the other person is feeling. It might be opening to the difficulties or suffering of someone we're close to, or to a stressful situation in the world. I had an interesting experience with the possibility and the liberating power of empathy. Some years ago, this is quite a few years ago, a situation happened at IMS, the meditation center in Barry, where someone did something that I just felt was way off. You know, and just seemed completely inappropriate. This was a staff person. And it's rare, it's rare that I get angry, you know, to a really boiling extent. <laughs> but I was really angry. <laughs> and every time I thought about it, I just got angrier. 
and there were a few notes back and forth. <laughs> and I got even angrier. Yeah. And I was trying everything. I was noting it and I was aware of it and I was this and that with it. But I was really caught. And then one day, and this, this went on over a period of days, one day I happened to pass by the office and I just overheard a snippet of a conversation and somebody was telling somebody else in the office how this other person that I was so angry at was really suffering in this situation. And it was amazing. That's all I needed to hear. You know, I never thought about his suffering. I was just so caught up in my own reaction to what he had done. As soon as I heard, oh, that he was suffering too, it's like the anger completely dissolved. And I just had this compassionate feeling for the whole situation. And it was such a lesson in empathy. You know, and just... Here it was the circumstance of overhearing somebody's remark, but it could be, you know, any circumstance that just allows us to stop for a moment and actually open to what the other person is feeling. So this is a very powerful practice. There could also be a situation where people really are behaving very badly, you know, and causing a lot of harm, either to ourselves or others. So what's our usual reaction in that situation? When we see somebody doing very harmful things, Usually, it's a judgment about how bad they are. You know, and feeling righteous in our judgment and often angry about it. But it's also possible in that situation, even when people are doing very harmful things, it's also possible to stop and understand what's going on in a larger context. There was a man, his name is Dr. Tenzin Chodak, and for some time he was a physician to the Dalai Lama while he was still in Tibet. And Dr. Chodak was imprisoned, when the Chinese came into Tibet, he was imprisoned and tortured for over 17 years. And much later, when he was released and, and living in the States, there was an article about him in the Harvard Medical Journal and just about his extraordinary ability not only to survive that ordeal physically, but to come out of it with his heart intact, right? not having succumbed to hatred or revenge, not closing down. He was able to remain open and compassionate. And the article in his words, described some of the things that made that possible, some of the wisdom that made it possible for his heart to stay open. One of the things he said was that he saw that his torturers and his enemies were human beings just like himself. That his guards, you know, and the the people uh, who were tormenting him were also people in adverse circumstances who were planting the seeds, the karmic seeds, of their own future suffering. He so understood the law of cause and effect that everyone's actions, all of our actions, have consequences. So he never forgot the commonality of the human condition. Understanding that all actions bring consequences. And what's striking to me in this is that Dr. Chodak didn't hold this understanding of the law of karma as a vehicle of revenge. It's not like he was saying they're going to get theirs. He held it as a vehicle of compassion. You know, and that's quite remarkable in that situation to so feel the commonality of the human condition, to see people who are inflicting harm and hurt upon himself, and to feel compassion for 
their own unwholesome actions. It's pretty remarkable. The Dalai Lama said, Your enemies may disagree with you, may be harming you, but in another aspect they are still human beings like you. They also have the right not to suffer and to find happiness. If your empathy can extend out like that, it is unbiased, genuine compassion. So that's an interesting uh, compassion test for us. Right? When we're in situations where people actually are doing harmful things to us, what is our response? Now it's important to understand that this doesn't mean being passive. You know, in situations where it is possible, we need to take appropriate actions, you know, to set proper boundaries, you know, and work to stop harmful behaviors. So it doesn't mean not doing any of those things. But it's a question of really looking at and examining our motivation. Is our motivation resentment? Is it hatred? Is it anger? Or is the motivation compassion to alleviate the suffering of the situation? The very great lesson here for all of us is that how we feel and how we respond to situations is up to us. Nobody makes us feel a certain way. Nobody makes us respond a certain way. That's the great freedom we have when we're aware, when we're mindful. So this is a description of Dr. Chodak by somebody who knew him. Uh, this was uh, written by a man named Claude Levinson, describing, describing Dr. Chodak. He said, an appearance almost of timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. Dr. Chota could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze, a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything, seeing beyond the suffering he has experienced beyond all the evil and the abuses he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. Pretty remarkable. You know, and I just take it as a great inspiration for what's possible, you know, as we walk on this path. So empathy brings us close to suffering. It allows us to feel what other people are feeling. But compassion takes us a step further than empathy. Because it's not only feeling what others are going through, but compassion is that strong motivation to act, to do something about it, to act on the feeling. As compassion grows we begin to take <coughs> a very active engagement with the world. You know, responding to the various needs of beings in whatever way seems appropriate or possible. And sometimes it might be just very small and unregarded ways. You know, maybe it's just a small act of generosity or a small act of kindness or a small act of inclusion perhaps a small act of forgiveness. You know, when compassion grows stronger, we're just paying attention in these very simple, ordinary ways to the people around us, and we extend ourselves. Sometimes compassion manifests through acts of tremendous determination. There's a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And it's about uh, Dr. Paul Farmer, who's an American doctor who worked for years uh, in public health in some of the poorest countries of the world. He worked for many years in Haiti, uh, 
working in the villages uh, with AIDS. And the book is a, is a tremendously inspiring story of his dedication and his work. And there's one anecdote in the book where he had walked most of a day to treat just two families. You know, and he had a very busy clinic. And his colleagues were kind of on his case for why did you take so much time you know, to walk just for those two families where there's so many people here who needed your help. So this is what he said. If you say that seven hours walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong in the world. When I read that, it was just so touching to me because it felt so true. You know, just the idea that some lives matter less than others is the root of all that's wrong in the world. So sometimes compassion manifests just with this great determination. Sometimes it manifests with or as tremendous courage. Um, Back in the 60s, in the civil rights movement in the States, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was leading these marches, uh, both in the North and South, in watching uh, some of the films of those marches, it was extraordinary. Because he was leading these marches, and of course his whole philosophy was of nonviolence and love and compassion. And he would be leading these marches surrounded by mobs of people filled with hatred. You know, and just you could just feel the hatred being uh, directed towards him, and he was holding that space of love and compassion. And it was remarkable, and of course the effect that he had was remarkable. So compassion is not a weakness. You know, when we can really tap into that space in ourselves, it gives tremendous strength. Sometimes compassionate action is very fierce, really fierce. And there's one story uh, about one of our teachers. Some of you may either have known her or know of her. Her name was Deepa Ma. Uh, and she was a Bengali woman who uh, was living in Burma while both India and Burma were still British colonies. And she was married, betrothed to 12, you know, and this was just the, the custom at that time, married at 14. Uh, it, was a very, it, was a, it was a very happy marriage. She didn't have children for a long time, and that was a great source of sorrow. And after many years, she had uh, three children quite uh, quickly. And soon after that, two of her three children and her husband died. You know, and as she described it, it was completely devastating. It's, she said that she spent five years in such overwhelming grief that she really felt she would die from the grief. Uh, because at that time she was living in, in what's now Burma, uh, you know, separated, she, she was Bengali. And then finally somebody suggested, you know, if you don't do something, you really will die from this, and just to go to one of the meditation centers. So she ended up going to a meditation center, and she was this most extraordinary woman, in a very short period of time, she had attained very high stages of realization, of awakening, of samadhi, of concentration, of all the psychic powers that come from concentration. She was just this unbelievably uh, adept yogi. And we we met her uh, when we were practicing in India. She had come back to Calcutta uh, years after that. And she was this amazing presence of just peace and love. I mean, that, that's all you felt in her. You know, just this great emptiness and vast heart. 
uh, you know, we would go up to her f- couple of rooms where she lived, and what we would consider slums, really. I mean, it was really a very poor section. You went into her rooms, and it was just filled with light, you know. And she would bless you and run her hands over you, and the so days afterward, you're still kind of blissed out. So there's a book about her life. It's called Deepama. If you if you have a chance, it's it's a very inspiring book. It's her story. So this is one of the stories from the book, and this is about Deepama's fierce compassion. It's a story in the book written by one of her disciples, a woman named Sudipti. So this is Sudipti writing the story. Sudipti said, When my son died in 1984, Deepama shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I have not forgotten. Today your son has gone from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter, my husband, my property. But when you are dead, nothing is yours. Sudipti, you think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. Just imagine, this is a woman whose son had just died. This is Deepama speaking, not abstractly. She had been through that suffering. And she didn't say, why are you sad? She said, why are you shocked? I just find that an incredibly powerful teaching and a reminder. We think we are serious meditators. Do we really know, have we really let it in, that everything is impermanent, everything is changing? Deepama was addressing the very root of suffering, which is why her response was so ultimately compassionate. In our practice of compassion, there is no particular hierarchy of compassionate action, you know, of what we should do. The field of compassion is limitless because it is the field of suffering beings. You know, and we each find our own way. It might take the form of active engagement in the world. It might take the form of sitting in a cave in the Himalayas for the rest of your life with the aspiration, with the motivation to awaken for the benefit of all. So there's no... There's no one form for compassionate action. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, the Bodhisattva spend countless lifetimes in solitude, you know, perfecting all the, the paramis, the qualities of Buddhahood, until they, all the enlightened qualities flowered in his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama. You know, but all that work done before, you know, often in solitude, often what when people might have said, oh, what's that guy doing? He's just sitting by himself in a cave. And yet here we are, 2,600 years later, benefiting from his great awakened wisdom and compassion. We each have to find our own way and see, okay, what is the appropriate field for us at any particular time to practice, to manifest compassionate action? We can practice it from two sides. From one side, we purify our own hearts and minds as a way of effectively taking care of others. And so just as an example, if two people are stuck in quicksand and they're both you know, falling in the quicksand, neither one can really help the other. 
But if one person is on firm ground, then they're actually able to give some help. We actually hear this message every time we get on an airplane. You know the announcement right at the beginning, before the plane takes off, where it says, in case there's a loss of cabin pressure, the oxygen mask will descend. Please put your own on first and then assist others. That's this message. If we take care of ourselves, our own minds, we actually are able to assist others. If we rush in trying to fix the situation without some clarity and understanding in our own minds, we often just add to the confusion. So all the work we're doing in terms of understanding and purifying ourselves becomes the foundation for compassionate action in the world. So this is one avenue of practice. The second way we develop compassion is from another side, and that's the practice of putting others before oneself. And this way of practice was beautifully described by Shantideva in his great book, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And this whole book is about how to be a bodhisattva. And of course, Shantideva is one of the great inspirations for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So part of this book are a few verses which are called uh, the Seven-Branched Prayer. And I want to read just a few of the verses because it gives a flavor of this aspiration for living as a bodhisattva. Living, living with this degree of compassion. So it says, like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. So this... It's really a dedication of one's whole life for the welfare and benefit of other beings. It's a noble aspiration. We might hear this and perhaps become inspired, but equally possible, we might feel a little daunted. You know, it's a bit overwhelming to consider could I really dedicate my life? to the welfare and benefit of all others, that's, that's a major aspiration. Would we really be able to live with this degree of generosity, you know, this great generosity of the spirit? Need a great humility. There's a man named Howard Cutler who spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama and co-authored the book, The Art of Happiness, with His Holiness. And Howard Cutler said that, you know, over the time, which was considerable, that he spent with the Dalai Lama, he just came to appreciate how compassion was just at the very heart of the path. But then he said about himself even as he was with His Holiness for so long and appreciated this quality, he said, I'm not a very compassionate guy, but at least I have compassion about not having compassion. (laughs) And I thought, there's some wisdom there. Because these aspirations, these are noble aspirations 
to live for the benefit of all beings. But we need to undertake it really with a great humility. It's like we simply plant the seed. We plant the seed of the aspiration. Or maybe we're planting the seed to have the aspiration to benefit all beings. You know, we start very small, in a very humble way, just where we are. You know, just with this possibility that our lives and our practice can be for the benefit of all. But if we plant the seed, a seed is very powerful. Thoreau, the great American naturalist, you know, and writer, he wrote, though, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. You know, it's just the power of a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. So we plant the seed, and it might be something we do at the beginning of a day, or the end of a day, or the beginning or end of a sitting. Just fostering that aspiration, may my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all beings. Or phrased in whatever way you know, resonates with each one of us. One of the great turning points in my practice over the years and what gave tremendous strength to this little seedling of the aspiration was the growing understanding that wisdom and compassion are not two different things but really are expressions of each other. We begin to see that compassion is the activity of emptiness. So compassion doesn't have to rest on the shoulders of a self who's going to become this great compassionate being. Rather, the more we understand the selfless nature, the empty nature, compassion is the natural response. Compassion is the activity of that understanding. So this is compassion not as an ego stance and it's compassion not even as a particular practice. Rather, it's the spontaneous expression of a heart that's increasingly free of self-reference. There's a another little Zen exchange uh, that in some obscure Zen way conveys this idea. I really like this one. And I probably don't have the pronunciation right of these Chinese characters. But it's a dialogue between Dao Wu and Yun Yan. Okay, so remember, this is a Zen dialogue. So Yunyan asks, why does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin have so many hands and eyes? So Dao says, it's like reaching back for your pillow in the dark. <laughs> Yunyan says, I understand. <laughs> Which was more than I did. <laughs> Uh, but Dao asks him what he understands. So Yunyan says about Kuan Yin, the whole body is covered with hands and eyes. You know, hands and eyes being the representation of compassionate action. The whole body is covered with hands and eyes. Dao says, almost. <laughs> you, know, you almost got it, but not quite. Yunyan says, then what do you say? Dao replies, there's nothing but hands and eyes. Yeah, and I thought, 
In the first response, there's still a someone there with lots of hands and eyes. And it's almost, but not quite. And Dawa replies, there's nothing but hands and eyes. Compassion is the activity of emptiness. It's the activity of selflessness. The more we experience that, the less self-reference, compassionate response becomes what happens. So each of us, in our own way, just plant and water these seeds of a kind heart, of a generous heart. And they grow and become the guiding principles of our lives. And even at those times when we're not acting from a place of compassion or wisdom, still having planted the seeds, they can be the reference point just that reminds us that there are other choices. Even when we're not acting from that place, there's still that place in us that knows, oh, there are other possibilities here. So I'd like to close with (coughs) a teaching from a wonderful young uh, Tibetan Rinpoche. His name is Minja Rinpoche. Uh, And he's a really bright young lama, very interested in the interface of science and meditation. He says, the best part of all is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of Buddhist meditation ultimately generates compassion, whether we're aware of it or not. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger, or aversion, you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear, anger, and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve. And the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables become as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. And this is the prayer of the four immeasurables. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free from suffering and free from the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy. May all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.